Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley and Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley and Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. This episode features a conversation with Shiva Sandal. Shiva is a partner in Foley's Chicago office with a practice focused on a variety of corporate transactional matters. In this discussion, Shiva reflects on growing up as a self-described military brat, attending college at Howard University, and law school at Boston College. But of course, Shiva's story is not exactly a straight line. During our discussion, Shiva unpacks the various places he lived in his childhood and says that overall he claims the Washington, D.C. area is home. He also reflects on his decision to attend Howard University, which, as you'll soon hear, is a little bit of unique given his particular background. And Shiva also discusses attending Boston College. One of my favorite things to ask partners on this show is how they found the law school experience, and Shiva was no exception. So I get Shiva to talk a bit about his experience at BC Law. He does share that it was challenging, but that he enjoyed it. And then we talk about his professional path, which for Shiva included two law firms, as well as being in-house before joining Foley laterally as a senior counsel. Shiva reflects on his early career. He discusses why it was he ultimately decided to go in-house. He talks about how what he learned in-house helps him now as he's working with clients. Additionally, a theme throughout my discussion with Shiva is essentially how life credentialed him to be really good at building relationships. And something about Shiva is that he's become known as a savvy business developer. So I get him to discuss that and to give his advice about developing business as a law firm attorney. And we end the podcast with Shiva giving general advice on the importance of self-awareness. I hope you enjoy my discussion with Shiva. Shiva, welcome to the podcast. We're going to start this the way we start all these shows, which is me asking you to give your professional introduction. Great. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Shiva Sandil, I'm a partner in Foley's Chicago office. My practice is, is basically a mixture of private equity and venture capital work with a focus on private company M&A. I represent on the private equity side, both private equity sponsors and uh, sellers, management teams selling to private equity sponsors, as well as on the venture capital side, corporate strategic venture capital firms, companies that have a venture capital arm, and then venture capital sponsors, as well as issuers, companies that are looking to get the cash injection from some of these sponsors in their sale and issuance of securities to folks that are interested. Also represent family offices and a general kind of corporate enterprises and conglomerates as well in their sales and and day-to-day corporate opportunities, strategic transactions as well. Eventually, we're going to unpack what all of that means. The former litigator mind in me is like corporate speak, corporate speak, (laughs) corporate speak. But we will get there. But before we do, let's start somewhat at the beginning. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? Great question. And I wish I had a simple answer to that because I am a military brat. My father was career military and I've grown up everywhere. I do claim the Washington, D.C. area as home, but let's get there. I was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and uh, spent some time there, and then eventually moved to Texas when my father joined the military. That career move for my father took us all over the world. So we were in Texas, and then I eventually finished elementary school in Texas, 
and then moved overseas to the UK and did middle school in the UK and completed high school in the Waldorf, Maryland area. So a suburb of Washington, D.C. I definitely consider Washington, D.C. to be my home area. I went to college at Howard University in Washington, D.C. And then upon graduating from Howard, interestingly enough, I went to medical school for a brief stint in New York City. I did that for a semester and a half. But my brother, who is now a judge in, in Houston, Texas, actually was diagnosed with cancer. And my parents themselves were battling cancer at the same time. So I ended up leaving medical school in New York and going to Houston to tend to my brother as my parents couldn't come down and, and spend time with them because they, at that time, would have had to been quarantined before they spent time with him. So I, I left the medical school, went down to Houston, spent time with family to take care of my brother. And it was there that I learned that I didn't necessarily want to pursue a career in medicine. And that was a surprise, surprise to my parents who wanted their Indian son to be a doctor. Yep. So instead you switch. And I'm actually going to stop you, Shiva, because I will not let you say your whole life in three minutes or rather I will, but I will go back and unpack the entire thing. Okay, great. Yeah. Because we're going to get to that inflection point for sure. But you said, you said so much. And so going back, I guess, I don't know, 45 seconds ago, you spent but like middle school years in the UK, essentially. And then when did you come back? For high school. So I started high school in Maryland. Okay. And then and when you're saying UK, is that London specifically or was it? It was kind of north of Cambridge, about, I would say, 30 minutes north of Cambridge. It was at a military base. My father was queer military. So it was a, a, a Royal Air Force Base, Lake and Heath. Interesting. So I asked this of all of our lawyers, very general question. We'll see where it goes, which is what sort of kid were you? What kind of kid were you? How would you describe yourself? If I found you in middle school and now I know it was outside of Cambridge, what sort of things were you were you into? What were you doing? Definitely like sports. I mean, sports was the, the common thread between me and all my friends. We Leaving the U.S. and moving to England, I thought for me was a bit daunting because as a child, you have your family who's your comfort kind of support network. And we went and left to another country. And although we didn't have the language barrier because everybody spoke English, there was a little bit of culture shock going from the U.S. to England. And on top of that, we lived in a military environment. So most of the time, wherever I grew up was either on a military base or in a military community. And that helped soften the transition, I'd say, because you're dealing with a lot of folks who've been through uh, similar life experiences as you are, with the exception of the fact that my father is Indian and we're one of the few Indians in the military. It, it helped me kind of realize I was different. This is taking a different turn, but you know, being in the military, you have kind of a, a transient community, people are moving. But when I went to England, I didn't realize that my my skin tone and my ethnicity would have su such an important impact on the way people treated me. I always thought it was, well, be kind to others and others will be kind to you. And parents kind of raised us in a moral household where, you know, you, you do unto others, right? And that's how we were raised. But when we went there, I remember playing wall ball with my brother in the backyard and, and people came out the window and were yelling racial epithets. And I didn't know what it meant. And um, I remember my father coming to speak to my class about what he did. And I had so much kind of pride as a as a student to have my father come in and talk about it and have people kind of uh, put my father on a pedestal. And the first comment that I heard coming out of it, getting a drink of water was, oh, your dad's dark like dirt. And I was like, it just crushed me. And 
you know, I didn't, I didn't really have to deal with that. And I was saying the fact that I grew up in Texas prior to that, but it was really when we moved to England that it was much more pronounced. Yeah, just, and, over, just overt. And I have to say, I didn't expect you to say that. I, I expected you maybe to give some examples of being othered, but really overt intentional discrimination, period. My understanding is some of the plights that African-Americans have had in the U.S. are similar to some of the plights that Indians had in England. And I didn't learn that about myself and my culture until I got there and and had to get educated on it because, well, I had to deal with it. (laughs) Yep. Well, and certainly formative in terms, I mean, it's interesting because you're getting this tremendous perspective by living in a different part of the world that a lot, you know, I, I certainly didn't get that as a child. But then you're also getting this other side where I think particularly for any racial or ethnic minority in the U.S., even if you haven't experienced someone saying just some very intentionally like racist things to you, you can point to some, you know, you just felt different because you're the minority, but to, to move to a, you know, a different part of the planet and to have that be such a pronounced experience, I, I'm, I'm sure that was, you know, affected things in a lot of ways in ways that we don't even have the time to fully unpack during this, this talk, but I appreciate you, you sharing that. And then also, so you come back to the U S I think you said, so you're in the DC area. Yeah. What was the transition back? Cause these are hard times to move by the way, middle school, high school, what's the transition back to the U S like, and then tell me a little bit about the process to figure out college. So just say words about all of that. Being in England, you know, after adjusting to kind of everything that that was, and then coming back to the U S you know, come back to the U S was something I think most folks that are in the military and have an expat assignment kind of look forward to at some point. I mean, you you want to exploit the ability to travel and take advantage of different cultures and viewing that and, and, and being in a different part of the world. But coming back to, to the U.S., I was super excited. My brother was transitioning uh, to college at that time, and I was transitioning to high school. And, you know, you see all the the fun and experiences that your older sibling has in that part of their their life and their growth. And I wanted to experience that. Coming back to to the DC area was fantastic. I mean, again, similarly, the common thread between my friend group was, you know, kind of playing sports, fitting in. And, you know, after experiencing what I experienced in England, I I really wanted to fit in, quite honestly. And so coming back and uh, again, being in in the military community, but my father lived uh, a little bit outside of where the military base was because, you know, his focus was education and he wanted us to go to a better public school than some of the ones closer to the base. But coming back was exciting. We really enjoyed it. You had a very diverse group of friends and that helped shape who I am. And, you know, particularly with, with my law practice, and we'll get to that as we get older, but I was able to develop a perspective from each and every part of my life that has helped me relate to people and really helped me when I try to meet new clients, pitch new clients and get new work, because, you know, I've had to break the ice at every at every step of the way, whether it's moving to uh, a new country, being enrolled into a new high school, a middle school, working retail. It puts me in front of people and it's really helped me kind of work the nerves. But Maryland, D.C. was fantastic. I loved it so much. I matriculated into Howard University. Uh, the Howard experience was interesting. Yeah, let's talk. And actually, before before we get there, and the listeners are going to kill me, I have a couple other th- a couple other questions because I should have asked earlier. So, what was your father's role in the military? Yeah, my father was uh, he he retired as a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Air Force, but he was a trained psychologist. But after actually going through some discrimination himself, he had to make a transition out of uh, a medical role into more of a administrative role because somebody believed in him. And his last 
got a big tenure was he worked in the Office of National Drug Control Policy, which was an office, a cabinet office of President Clinton. So that's what brought us to the D.C. area, which was a really great experience for him and for my family. That's really interesting. And then you also mentioned some things, and I think the listeners get this, but I'm just going to say it more clearly. It's just interesting how life sort of gives you the credentials for certain things, whether or not you knew you were earning them at the time. So all these really hard experiences, you know, we're seeing this theme of how they've allowed you, you know, we're going to explore this to do what you do today and how they contribute to that. But yes, tell me about Howard. So you're, you're deciding, I want to go to college. How did you decide where to go? How did you decide on Howard? Yeah. So Howard, you know, notwithstanding the fact that I visited schools with my brother and, and even in the application process, it was really my first entree into college. And I say that because uh, when I was in high school, uh, my guidance counselor had this program for low income or first generation students. It was called the Upward Bound Program. And she said, well, actually, she handed out the application to a lot of other students in my class. And I don't know if it was FOMO or jealousy or whatever it was, but I saw people with this packet and I looked over their shoulder and I, I thought, well, I should be a candidate for that. So I went to her office proactively and I said, look, I, I see this packet. Is this something I'd be interested in? Is it something you think I, they would be interested in for me? And she said, well, you know, tell me a little bit about yourself. She learned that I was first generation. Both my parents were born in India. I was born in the U.S. And I applied uh, to this program. She gave me a packet. I applied and I was accepted. And I mean, from the day that I had any interaction with Howard University, it was fantastic. I mean, I, I went there, I did the Upper Bound program, which essentially gave me college level courses in high school and allowed me to go every Saturday from my junior year up until I matriculated into college and take classes there at Howard on the campus, interact with students, inter- interact with the facility, uh, with faculty. And also I was uh, did well enough in the program to do this math and science initiative program that Howard University had. And I was able to spend my summers at Howard between my my junior year and my senior year, which to me, I made the best friends, notwithstanding the fact that I was different there, I was accepted. And I, I really, really enjoyed it. And when I was applying to colleges, I applied to Howard, but I applied to some other schools that to me personally, I thought had more cachet, would give me you know better opportunities to springboard my career. And when I graduated from the Upper Bound program, they did a ceremony immediately uh, prior to my uh, high school graduation ceremony, and the dean of enrollment uh, took me aside and she said, "Hey, Shiva, you know, I noticed that you applied to Howard, and we haven't heard back from you. Are you going to attend?" And I said, "Well, you know, I'm still waiting on Georgetown and GW and some of these other schools." And she said, "You know, why don't you and your parents come to my house for dinner one evening before you make a decision?" Sure, you know, always down for free food. So we went to we went to her house and she said, look, I think it's really important that students that are a part of the program attend the school and you did really, really well. And while you don't qualify because my SAT scores weren't high enough for, you know, this the highest scholarship that we have, I will give you a leadership scholarship and it'll be the first of its kind. And if you maintain a certain grade point average at Howard, I will make sure that other Howard University upper bound students are will have the opportunity and be eligible for this scholarship for years to come. And, you know, I, I went back, spoke to my parents and, and they were they wanted me to take it on the spot. I, and I think it was more of a you're safe here. We know people care about your, your development, your growth, less about financials, because I, I thought initially like, oh, you guys don't want me to go because it's it's free and you don't want me to go here and there where my friends are going, University of Maryland, here or wherever folks were going that I was comfortable with. Because 
to my knowledge, I was the only student coming out of my high school going to Howard. And it's only kind of looking back that I realized that my parents were encouraging me to go because they knew it was going to be best for my future growth and development. Anybody that has kids or has gotten older and looks back, you can tell that a lot of the sage advice your parents give you is really wise at the time, notwithstanding the fact that you fight them. And so I ended up thinking about that long and hard. And there were other schools that were ranked higher that I thought would be better for me. And I went to Howard and I wouldn't change that for the world. I mean, it was a fantastic experience. Well, that nurturing. Uh, and also well, and also something you mentioned earlier, I think you said that you were a bit different, but were very much accepted. And once again, for listeners who I all, you know, I think most people are familiar with Howard University, but it's a historically black college or a historically black university in Washington, D.C., and so when you say that, you know, you're a little bit different, meaning, you know, you're not going there as a, you know, a black person, but you were very much accepted and supported by the community, which I think is interesting because even though Howard's known for being an HBCU, the, the attendance is not exclusively black. Like I, I've known people who've gone to Howard undergrad as well as Howard Law School who identified as other things. So I think it's just really an interesting part of your story. And frankly, also something that I think HBCUs are known for is that connection, community, nurturing of the, the individual? And I see you nodding as I say that. So maybe you could say a little more. Well, that's absolutely right. I mean, remember, I, I said that the dean of enrollment management is the person who invited us over. And I remember, you know, going to my first day of trying to get your validation sticker to get registered for classes. She found me out in the line and she said, come here. She brought me up front, ushered me through the process no problem. I got it done in 30 minutes while people were waiting, you know, two, three days at a time to try to get this. And it, it was a microcosm of the experience that I had because, you know, you go through growth, you know, a lot of growth during your college years. And I will tell you, my closest friends, even till this day, are some of the folks that I, I stay in contact with and who were my roommates at Howard and experienced a lot of the same things I did at the same time. And, you know, they've all really, really done well. And despite, you know, growing up in, in different types of environments, whether it's a single parent household or a two parent household, but it was that sense of we're in this together. And I, I really, really do appreciate that. And I look back at those years very, very fondly. And I will tell you that employers and recruiters for a variety of different programs come and look at Howard because there's something about that experience, whether it's getting highly motivated folks that are social engineers or academics, the college really does nurture you to be a really good and well-rounded person in my view. Yeah, absolutely. And something else, and this is a little dangerous, isn't the right term, but I wish I had the full name of the series. But so Malcolm Gladwell has his podcast called Revisionist History, and I wish I had the episode numbers for listeners. But he does about, a, I think it's a three-part series looking at US News and World Report, and he uses an HBCU to show kind of what U.S. news values versus some things that are like happening on the ground, the tremendous way students are being supported. So I would just suggest listeners check out Malcolm Gladwell's series examining both HBCUs in contrast to U.S. News and World Report rankings, because he really stresses that point about the community, the nurturing, and how in a lot of ways it's a really tremendous value because often these schools are not as expensive as some of the others. But okay, so you're at Howard. What was your major? What did you think you were going to do there? Yeah. So I, as I said earlier, I alluded to this, but my, my Indian parents wanted an Indian son to be a doctor. So I had to go in as a bio major and uh, I was a biology major at Howard and was in the College of Arts and Sciences. And again, really enjoyed that. I mean, I took classes, the general classes as everyone else, but 
when I was able to apply for an internships and get opportunities, I was a teacher's assistant at Howard. I, I taught students comparative anatomy, but I applied for an internship at, at Cornell University and Cornell in their nanobiotechnology center uh, was looking specifically for students from HBCUs. And so me and my then roommate at the time, as well as, as, well as a group of students from Clark Atlanta and Morehouse attended this program at Cornell and, and really enjoyed it. And, you know, notwithstanding the fact that we were only there for a summer, it really boosted our, our resume when we we're applying to medical school. And so, you know, I did that. I was able to do a few internships at Johns Hopkins University for the NIH and, and really kind of padded my resume as I thought in order to apply to and attend medical school. So where did you end up going for medical school? I did a brief stint at Columbia Medical School in New York, where I went for essentially a semester, maybe a semester and a half. And yeah, my father was diagnosed with cancer while I was uh, in undergrad. And then my mother, ovarian cancer, two years after him while I was in undergrad. And then, as I mentioned, my brother went to law school at the University of Houston. And when he graduated, I was on the precipice of graduating from Howard and attending medical school, and he was diagnosed with type 4 B lymphoma. So it was the, the most progressed state. And at that time, my parents couldn't tend to him. And my sister-in-law was a first-year associate at a large law firm and really his only means to, to health insurance. And so, you know, while she wanted to be there for him and she did a fantastic job doing the same, you know, he needed someone that was there kind of on a more consistent basis, whether it's for hope, moral support or whatnot. And so I, I left medical school to spend time and, and tend to him. And also, I know at this point, we're many years, a number of years removed from this. And I can just, I think everybody is likely has encountered or will encounter some really challenging times with, you know, the health of family or friends or just, you know, not great things can happen sometimes. That's, that's really hard, Shiva. Was that sort of like a one day at a time in, in terms of your life, dealing with just, you know, all of that going on? Yeah, I mean, you know, at the time, I don't know if I was mature enough to take it all on. But in, in retrospect, it let me know that there's a lot to be thankful for, right? It was one thing after another, but it was it was harder on them than it was for me, right? Here it is. My brother was 26 years old, and when he was diagnosed, they gave him 60 days to live. And so I, I can't complain about how hard it was on me because obviously there was somebody there fighting for his life. So. And then did you mention that he is now a, he's now a judge? Yeah, he's on his third or fourth term. He's he's been a judge in Houston since the age of 32. So uh, he's doing well, and and again, always something to be thankful for. He couldn't have biological children, but he adopted my my nephew Asher from Guatemala, and that he's a great gift that we all uh, received at the family, and and so happy to have him as part of the family. So wow, that's a, that's a, that's a whole nother story, a whole nother podcast right there. <laughs> but so you also mentioned earlier stepping away during this time, it also caused you to revisit that decision to become a doctor. So what was that thought process, and how does law school come on the scene? Yeah, that's a good question. So it was actually my brother, you know, spending time from him, leaving med school to spend time for him. And, you know, honestly, it was him that said, look, life's too short to be chasing mom and dad's dream. Right. I mentioned my parents always wanted me to become a doctor because it was like, you know, it's a prestigious career. It's something you should think about and consider doing. And ever since I was little, I you know, obviously wanted to make my parents proud and kind of had that in my head that I, I wanted to be a doctor because it was noble. And it is it is all those things. But, you know, it wasn't that I had this burning desire in my heart to pursue that as a passion. 
And my brother said, look at me, I'm 26 years old. I've been diagnosed with this terminal illness. You need to do what makes you happy. And, you know, I'd encourage you to sit and think about that and, and, and then make a decision that's best for you. And, you know, obviously seeing him in a frail state and, and, and that really kind of hit home and it struck a chord. And so I thought about it and I, and I thought to myself, well, you know, for me, medical school and, and pursuing medical school biology, for me, it was a lot of memorization, but it wasn't passion. And what I thought I was good at was soft skills and talking to people and being around people and, you know, having had to move around and get comfortable with people of different types and different cultures. And, you know, I thought to myself after talking to him, you know, maybe I'd be good at this law thing. And he, here he was um, struggling for his life. And he was saying, man, I just want to get back to work. I, I, I want to get back to, to learning and, and, and being a lawyer. And I thought, well, you know, I look up to you, you know, maybe, maybe there's something to it. And so uh, after he got to a point where he was fine, I went and spent time working at a law firm in Washington, D.C. I was doing at first I was a receptionist and then they said, uh, you seem to have the chops. Why don't you work as a paralegal? And so I started doing that and really liked it. But it was more litigation focused. And I could tell that wasn't something I wanted to do. I wanted to do more transactional work. And so. I had that backdrop kind of pushing me towards the law, but not litigation. And so then law school, you start applying and how did you figure out where to go? Yeah, similar thing. You know, I was applying to law school, applied to Howard, obviously had a great experience there, applied to a lot of different schools. And, you know, similar to the Howard University Upper Brown program, I had a mentor that told me about something called Clio that the ABA runs. And the Clio program was something that I was really interested in doing. It was similar to, to Howard, where you would go to a, a law school campus and be able to experience law school kind of the semester before you matriculate in. And I even read that if you did well, there were opportunities, you know, whether it's scholarship money or kind of opportunities to interview at schools that you may or may not have gotten into and things of that nature that are affiliated with Clio. So I did, it's a, Clio is a council for legal educational opportunity. Uh, and it's a program, again, sponsored for generally students that might not have, you know, not saying the fact my brother's a lawyer, but not, and he's the first lawyer in my family, but might not have lawyers in their family or uh, are minorities or come from a different background. And I applied to the program, was able to get in. And when I got in, uh, I really wanted to go to Boston College. In my mind, that was one of the few schools that I want to go to, but I didn't get in. I got waitlisted when I applied. And so I was told uh, by BC if you finish in the top five of your class, we'll reconsider your application. You know, Clio is a lot of fun and it can be a lot of fun from a social perspective, from an educational perspective. But if I had gone to Boston College or gotten into Boston College or the school that I really want to go to at that point in time, if I went to Clio knowing that I was in, I would have had a completely different experience. But I was studying hard to be in the top <laughs> of the Clio class. And there's some bright kids in that program. Fortunately, I finished where I needed to finish, and I did well in the program, and, and BC was fantastic. They honored kind of their, their promise to me, which is if you finished pretty highly, we'd consider you. And, and not only did they do did they consider me, but they did offer me a scholarship, which was fantastic. Well, that's wonderful. And yeah, we have some ground to cover, and I think we can do it. So, But I'm gonna, there's a few key inflection points I now have to ask you about, which is, so what was law school like for you? Did you enjoy it? Was it hard? Was it easy? It was hard, man. I mean, I, I think you get this imposter syndrome when you're in, in, in law school, right? I mean, I, I remember my first year thinking, man, everybody's smarter than me. 
right? I mean, there's some smart kids in law school and people that may have lawyers in their family are just, we're better. And I remember struggling my first year, knowing that your first year grades, or at least as they told me, your first year grades kind of dictated your future. And, you know, I didn't have that same network and community that I had at Howard going into law school. And, and quite honestly, you read all these books thinking going into law school, it's going to be competitive and you're not going to even have any real friends. Uh, I did have some great friends and I still have some very good friends from law school, but definitely went through a year or two of imposter syndrome in law school. But I, I did enjoy law school and I was fortunate enough while I was at a networking event through BCG, uh, BLG, which is the Boston Lawyers Group, who holds a networking event for for first year, second year law students of diversity in Boston to introduce them to large law firms. So Boston, again, despite the fact that it's a very large city and there's a big professional population in Boston, there's not a lot of diverse professionals that go to school in Boston and elect to stay in Boston. And there's some historical reasons for that and, and potentially some professional reasons for that. And I think Boston's doing a great job of kind of dispel that and right-size it. But there had been some some challenges for minorities to stay in the Boston environment professionally. And BLG uh, is a resource that tries to make sure that professionals, uh, particularly lawyers, who want to stay there know that they have a home there and that there's resources and mentors to help champion you through that and be there for you. Is that how you found your first law firm yeah. opportunity? Yeah. I was neurotic. When I was a first-year law student, I think it was like the NALP director, he tells you sometime in November you can apply. And that's the, the day I hit go. And I dropped, and I hate to admit this, but I dropped like 100 resumes and cover letters out that day. And I was fortunate. Like out of 100, I might have got you know four 1L offers to to go and be a summer associate. And that's a big deal for a 1L, at least at the time, to get a, a spot at a, a summer program. But you know, if you look at the odds of that, four or five percent was not that great. But it, I was very fortunate. But you know, I I applied to a lot of different firms, some in Boston, some in you know other cities. And I went to a BLG event while that was out and while those resumes were out. And I met uh, this gentleman, Ken Felter, who was a partner at Goodwin. He was a litigator. We just hit it off and we had a great conversation. Ken and I couldn't be any different. You know, he was an elderly white man uh, who kind of grew up in the New York, Boston area. He worked at uh, Goodwin Proctor as a litigator. I think he's now at, at Ropes and Gray, but uh, he was at Goodwin Proctor. But Ken and I just hit it off. And he said, you know, Shiva, I believe in you. You know, I remember sitting at the buffet line trying to get a plate of food and he made he gave me the sense of belonging that I believe in you. I don't care what your grades say. I don't care where you went to school, but you're a person and I like your story. And I have a similar story. My father was in the military. I didn't come from much. And, you know, so why don't here's my card. Why don't you email me, you know, tomorrow and, and, and send me a copy of the resume that you sent in that blast in the law in the law library studying neurotically fearing that I was going to be on cold call on the, on the next class and I get a call and it's the legal recruiting department at Go and Proctor. And they said, would you like to come in for an interview? Yes. When do you need me? I'll be there. <laughs> I'll be there. And I was there. And not only did I get an offer to be a part of their summer program upon finishing their summer program as a one L I got an offer for a permanent position uh, to join Goodwin Proctor when I graduated from BC. 
Thank you, Ken Felter. Yes, which is a huge, you've, you've obviously said so many things, particularly that make my diversity and inclusion professional heart sing about belonging and connection. And you never know who you can connect to, even though they may look different from you, their story in some way may have some parallels. You've also spoken to a whole lot of law student anxiety, by the way. So a couple of things I like hearing having our partners talk about that experience, because I hope law students can see, you know, your career is long, it ebbs and flows, but People who are now partners at law firms also thought law school was hard, also were once very afraid they'd find they wouldn't find a job, um, and then eventually did. So thank you for for addressing that too. Cause I just it doesn't get old hearing that story. I know law students appreciate it. But then, and I'm gonna I'm gonna fast forward a little bit because there's so many things about your career, Shiva, that we I have to get to before we end, because I know you've both been in-house. You've worked at a couple other firms before Foley. So we will touch on those before the end of this podcast, but we now need to connect it back to your practice. So you finished law school. I'm assuming you did end up starting with Goodwin. And how did you know your practice area? How did that happen? Well, they kind of, once you graduate and you you have to pick, you know, are you IP, are you litigation, are you business law? Assuming that they have a position for you in that in that uh, role, then you're allowed to be in that role. So I, I chose business law. Obviously, I told you I was transactionally focused. Went to Goodwin, uh, worked there for about three and a half years in their private equity, venture capital, tech company group, enjoyed it. But they they were going through a downturn, right? I mean, I started working at Goodwin in, in 2007, and they were super busy. At that point in time, but then the bubble burst. That's good. Yeah, 2007, because we know what happens in 08, 09, 2010, Great Recession, all that. Yeah. Yeah. So I worked there. We got, you know, to start off, I was working on big MA, a lot of venture capital work, really interesting stuff, really enjoyed it. And I and I always felt like I had access to good work. But then, you know, the writing was on the wall. You know, the the work dried up. And so I went to a smaller shop in Boston where I was doing Similar work to the work that I was doing at Goodwin, maybe with one less zero at the end of the purchase price. Enjoyed that. Uh, but while I was there, the the attorney next to me said, hey, I got a call from a headhunter to go, you know, in-house to a Fortune 50 company. He didn't tell me the name and it, you know, it sounded really interesting, but it would require a move. And at that time, I was not married, didn't have kids at the time. And so I said, well, tell me a little bit more about that. And so he forwarded on the email. I called the recruiter. Again, me being proactive. Remember, I got passed up from the Upper Bound program and found that out myself. And I called the recruiter, and it ended up being Caterpillar uh, in Illinois. And I thought it was an interesting opportunity, and I wanted to pursue it. So I applied and was fortunate enough after you know a long period of time and interviews and things of that nature to get an offer to go in-house at Caterpillar. And so I, I took that position. And it sounds like before Caterpillar, had you been practicing, what was like four or five About years? three and a half, four years, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And and like you said, M&A, VC. And so when you go in-house to Caterpillar, what, what sort of role was that? So when I was hired at Caterpillar, it seemed like they were hiring for the quote-unquote best athlete, not the best position player, because what they were looking for was someone who could help with general transactional work. It wasn't, you're going to be an M&A gal or M&A guy. You're going to be part of the commercial legal team. And that was going to be my, my question. I was like, like some sort of commercial role, presumably. Yeah. So I was working in the commercial legal team. And my first assignment for the first two and a half years was supporting procurement 
contracts and other things on the periphery to the extent that they had a need, but it was mostly procurement. Well, and also for the, particularly the law students. So I, I now have, a, this is one of those things in the show, I'm always like, I know what that means, but maybe others don't, or maybe I don't. But um, when, when someone says they're in a commercial role, commercial counsel, well, particularly in-house, to me, I usually think of it as pertaining to contracts. But when it comes to in-house, usually like you, you mentioned procurement, there's other sort of like business units that you are are working with. So maybe you could just say a little bit more, because normally we don't talk a lot about different in-house roles, but since I have you, I can't help but educate just a little bit. Yeah, no, not a problem. So Caterpillar, obviously a big conglomerate. They've got offices everywhere, and you wouldn't be surprised to hear that they've got about 300 lawyers. So at the time, they had about 300 lawyers. And so the lawyers, essentially your clients when you're in-house, really are the business units, the business teams. You know, when you are supporting procurement, in my in my situation, you're supporting global purchasing. So some organizations have a centralized purchasing program or a decentralized purchasing program. Meaning if it's centralized, all of the purchasing, whether it's toilet paper, photocopiers, parts, whatever it may be, goes through one purchasing group. And then that purchasing group leans on legal counsel internally to support those contracts and those transactions. And those those things can be very deep and very wide, or they can be very narrow. If you have a decentralized purchasing group, that means that each business unit, if you're assigned to a business unit, has the power to procure the goods, services, supplies that they may need, and you support a business unit. So at that time, I supported Caterpillar's global purchasing unit. And I supported their purchasing unit with a variety of things. The business units that we supported were uh, mostly in the software space. There were also business units in the professional services and consulting services space. So I did a lot of contract works and in and, and that regard. And then eventually, uh, Caterpillar has a program, which is great, where they rotate you out of roles into new roles. And so some of those roles are in Illinois. Some of those are global. Some of those are in different states. And so I was fortunate enough to get a role outside of Peoria, Illinois, where I was living when I joined Caterpillar, to a suburb of Chicago, LaGrange, where I was supporting the rail division. And there, believe it or not, I supported international locomotive sales into the Middle East, Africa, uh, Europe, and uh, Australia. Wow, that is really interesting. And I'm not going to ask a lot more about that because I've run out of time. (laughs) But I am thinking overall, whenever I've talked to particularly a partner who spent time in-house, the just tremendous um, perspective that that gives you now in working with your clients who are in-house. So just say a little bit about the transition back to law firm life, because there's also part of me that's thinking, given some of the things you said about your skill sets, that there there's aspects of practice in a firm that you're not getting when you're in-house. And I'm wondering if those are part of what a, what caused you to want to go back to, to a law firm. Yeah, I'll start in reverse order. So what got me back interested to going to a law firm was I, I really wanted to get to the deals that got the juices flowing for me. And, and those deals were really the VC deals and the M&A deals. And, and Caterpillar, you know, oftentimes did a lot of M&A work. At the time that I left Caterpillar, they didn't, they weren't doing a lot of VC work, but they were doing a lot of M&A work. And there was a group and either you were part of global purchasing or you were part of the M&A team. While they were all part of the commercial group, you either were in or not. And at that point in time, as much as I wanted to do the M&A work, I wasn't part of that group. 
and I supported on the periphery and the margins when they needed help because I had some ex expertise. But hopefully that would have been my next assignment, but it wasn't. But look, it was a, it was feels like a long career, but you really have to take control of your career. And I wanted to have the opportunity to do that type of work again. And so that's why I, a big reason why I went back into private practice. But, you know, the things that I learned was one of the most important thing that I realized was you don't want to be the deal prevention team. You know, when you're working for a big corporation like Caterpillar, people need things and they need things done. And while I was at a large law firm, I felt like, wow, I could be a glorified issue spotter. Like here are 10 issues, you know, pat me on the back for finding these issues. You know, when you're in-house, you've got one client and you've got to find a way to get this journey done and you got to keep the wheels in motion. And even now, you know, people want you to, you know, quantify risks, tell us about the exposure as a means to get the deals done. So it really helped me find a way to problem solve, to, to reach the end goal versus just spotting issues. And I think when I was a junior associate, all I wanted to do was look how many issues I found and, you know, here are things that we can help navigate through that. But I thought I got points for spotting issues. Yeah. Problem solver versus issue spotter. The problem solver also knows how to spot the issues, but now they're going to get things, <laughs> they're going to keep things, keep things moving. So after you left Caterpillar, you joined Foley, essentially. Why, why Foley? You know, I was looking at a variety of different firms and I will tell you, I got a call from a headhunter about Foley and some of the other firms that I were considering were firms I were familiar with in Boston and, and big firms. But one thing that really interested me about Foley was Caterpillar has a special place in my heart because I had a great experience there as well. But the Midwest values really shine through when I was at Caterpillar. It was really, we want you to be a great lawyer. We want to develop you personally and professionally, but we care a lot about you as a person and your family. And I remember, you know, when, when the recruiter called me about Foley and he said they're Midwest based and, you know, it's, it, it struck a chord. And I loved it. But when I was talking to other firms, I'll tell you, some of the fir other firms I was speaking with discounted my in-house experience. And they said, oh, well, you're in-house. So instead of you coming in as a blank year, fifth year, sixth year, whatever it was, we'll bring you in as a fourth year because, you know, that's not true law firm experience. And you didn't have as many reps as some of the other folks that were looking to recruit. So we're going to say that you're graduated from law school this year, but you're going to be class of this year when you came into private practice. And as, as you mentioned and alluded to, there's some value to that in-house experience. And to me, you know, when your clients are paying for your time uh, in private practice, sometimes they don't come to you with all the questions that they have because they're worried about a meter running. When your parents aren't paying for your time in-house, you know how many drop-ins I'd get a day or how many meetings I'd have a seat at the table at that I wouldn't be privy to otherwise. And you start thinking on a global basis, you start thinking on a end result basis that helps you be a little bit more analytical and problem solving that, you know, when Foley came in and said, no, we value that. We, we, we really do. And they brought me in as a senior counsel, which, um, you know, some of, some of our listeners probably know is equivalent to the income partner at other firms. It made me feel good about that experience. It made me feel like it was valued. And I didn't have a lick of business to my name. And I remember I, I remember being asked, you know, do you think you can bring in some Caterpillar work during the interview? I said, probably not. You know, it doesn't work like that. Notwithstanding all that, fully valued the experience. Yeah, that's surprising to me because like you said, when you don't have that meter running, also you are getting reps in. I mean, maybe they're on, they're on a, a different sort of rep potentially, but it's still reps. And then also you saying you didn't have a lick of business to your name when you joined. You know, I know that's no longer the case, I, I believe, because <laughs> I do. I know you really enjoy that relationship building business development role. 
And I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that because joining as a lateral, you know, getting promoted to partner and really being known as somebody who can be re- be relied on to, to help with that relationship building. Is that just because you in, enjoy it? And how, how did that come to be that you've been able to develop business? So yeah, I do enjoy it, but I've gone on for about an hour now. So you can see how, and I think selfishly, it's because I have a perspective, right? I've gone through a lot of different experiences in my lifetime so that when I, when I speak with people, I try to find that common thread. For me, I'm not speaking on panels. I'm not trying to be a thought leader. I'm not presenting to get work. There's nothing wrong with that. And it works for a lot of people and it works very well. For me, it's relationships. I've been able to maintain, obtain, and grow clients through relationships. And I think that's because I'm not afraid to get in front of people. I'm not afraid to ask for work. And I'm not afraid to promote the team that I have here at Foley. When I pitch, it's never Shiva can do X, Y, and Z. It's like, we're a top five this, or we're able to do that. And we've got a great team. And I'll make sure you get the A team. And here's the value proposition. And here's a differentiator. Because I have the backing of the firm. The firm supported me. And I'm happy to sell the firm. You know, if I'm the entree, the entryway into the relationship, that makes me happy. I'm happy to do it, happy to maintain it. I really like playing in teams. I played sports growing up, as I mentioned. So being a part of a team is something that's really important to me. And then being able to sell the team, uh, particularly because, as you said, I made partner at Foley. And I don't take that lightly because they brought me in at a, at a higher level. They supported me as if I started here day one, as I was an organic first-year associate or summer associate coming all the way up you know, for promotion through the Partnership Selection Committee. So I really am deferential to to my colleagues and to the firm for the opportunities they've given me. But I also like maintaining the relationships outside of the firm, the experiences that I've had growing up as a, an Indian first-generation student going to Howard, going to BC, going to Goodwin Proctor, remembering what Ken Felter did for me, doing for others. And so the in-house experience is invaluable. Uh, and I really do feel that my perspective has helped me cultivate and grow and harvest relationships. And I just love that Foley's given you the platform for that and supported you. And I, so for me, Foley's the fourth large law firm that I've worked in, and I've been on you know different sides, two of those I was practicing, two on this side of the house. But I know it's not always easy to come, actually, huge understatement, it's not easy to come in as a lateral to build relationships, to understand the platform, and to um, be able to provide it to clients in, in a way, particularly when you're at that, that cusp where you're starting to develop business. So from what I've seen of your career at the firm, it seems like you've been able to plug in well, and the firm is been nimble enough and allowed you to kind of step forward in a ways that made sense for you, which is great. Um, But as we transition and close out, there's one thing I wanted to mention before asking you the final substantive question, which is, so we didn't get in the weeds of what, you know, M&A is and what venture capital is. So I just wanted to tell listeners, if you'd like to hear more about some with a VC practice, check out episode one of the podcast with Vaughn Bryant. And then also for another, and we have a number of of deal lawyers, but for a self-proclaimed deal junkie, check out Clyde Tinnan, who is episode 54. They get a little bit more into the the weeds of, of the practice. But my final question for you, Shiva, is your overarching advice. You've said so many things are so incredibly insult- insightful, so it's almost unfair for me to ask. But your advice to that to that law student or that person early in, in their career? Yeah, I think self-awareness. Be true to who you are and be yourself. And what I mean by that is, you know, coming out of law school, I knew I wanted to go to a large law firm. I knew that I wanted to do transactional work. 
my advice is follow that. It's a long career. Get as many opportunities as you can. And when you're interviewing for whatever job, realize that you're also interviewing them. You're going to be spending a lot of time at a law firm, in-house, wherever you are. You want to be comfortable. You want to make sure you're getting the highest degree of professional development and do it and be deliberate. I think sometimes we choose our employer based on a ranking or a national cachet, and that might not be the best situation for us, whether it's we're male, minority, not a minority. You want to be somewhere where you're getting exposure to the type of deals you want to do or the type of cases you want to work on and a place that will appreciate you. I would not have been able to really garner any degree of success in my career if it wasn't for others opening doors for me. And uh, I think people did it because they wanted to, not because they had to. And I've found a lot of mentors along the way. And, And a funny thing about mentorship is I think you don't realize when you have a mentor until after the fact, because you have to look back and say, well, that person was a mentor because they've had a certain impact in my career. But if you're in an environment professionally that makes you feel comfortable, then I think you'll find mentors in in, in that place of work. That is wonderful advice. Final, final question. Can listeners feel free to find you on Foley's website and send you an email if they have comments or questions? Happy to. Yeah, I would love that. All right. Thank you so much, Shiva. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley and Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner, LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice. 